time that we do them. And uh, as we move forward, too, I just want to encourage you, if you haven't been baptized and you maybe feel that inkling, feel free to come and contact us. We do them about quarterly uh, to allow people to have some time to process those things. Um, but to join in this moment with families is just one of, the, one of the best things that we get to do here as pastors and as leaders um, at a church. Um, I also wanted to say just thank you. Yesterday, we hosted our third ever Reconcile Conference here, and um, it was a really cool moment. Thank you for those who showed up and were able to come out. Um, the speakers were um, encouraging and challenging both at the same time, and this is kind of our, our hope that we use this as a stepping stone that next year we'll be able to kind of be in our more uh, a larger scale, partnering with some other churches along the way. This was our first time after COVID, um, and it was a really great time to be together, and our hope is that next time we'll have uh, operating on all four cylinders like we have in the past. So um, exciting times here, uh, exciting to be heading into the holidays, and excited today just so we get to open up God's Word. Man, how many people were surprised by the amount of snow we got yesterday? Is it just me? Because I'm not really from here. Yeah, I'm still acclimating to the culture. Yeah, we got a little bit, we called it the anointing yesterday, so uh, we were anointed by the snowfall as it happened yesterday, but just uh, finally getting some, some uh, colder weather after having a really great fall. So um, today we are finishing out, uh, well not finishing, sorry, next week we'll be finishing. This is the second to last sermon on, in a series that we've been talking about what it means to belong um, in general, what that idea means to us as human beings in this uh, culture, but also then more specifically, what does it mean to be a person who belongs to a community of believers? And the idea is for us to allow the scriptures to teach us what that means, allow for us to understand um, how we can uh, increase our understanding and sense of belonging to this group of people, as well as understanding that there are some disciplines that we put in place in the midst of that. And so we talked about four disciplines, gathering together, giving together, growing together, and going together. And so we've done all of those, and then we kind of did them in reverse order back, and this is our last one of those disciplines, gather, and then next week we will end cap the whole thing together. And the idea here is what, what do we talk about, what do we mean, what do we, how do we define the idea of the gathering of believers? Well, my, my own experience, um, when we were in New Orleans, we were part of a regular church plant uh, that was meeting. In t- well, maybe that's not as regular. So this church plant um, rented a movie theater, and we set up and tore down every single week in this movie theater, projected up onto the screen um, early on Sunday morning uh, that you would normally watch on there, and then we tore things down. And for a long time, that was it before we were able to get a building. It, towards our last half of our time in New Orleans, we were part of a house church network, and the rhythm of life looked a lot different than that. It was called Element. NOLA, and it was um, this, the idea was that as a house church uh, uh, or a network of house churches, a gathering of house churches, every single week, anywhere from four to six house churches would be gathering together at some point in time during that week. And then only once a month would that group come together for a large group gathering like what we do here. And so we would bring in, you know, have musicians play, do a normal service, and we would set up and tear down in a venue that was in a part of New Orleans, in downtown New Orleans. Um, And it was exciting. And and each of those house churches had an elder, and those leaders met on a regular basis. And so there was very little production required in the midst of that, but there was a lot of requirement on the side of the individual people who were participating, and our missional engagement was just out of this world. I mean, you, you just, you can't help emotionally engage with everything that's going on around you. 
um, there's, a, there's a lot of communal bond. Then, then I've worked at, um, as a volunteer, I led worship for a college ministry uh, that, uh, when I say college ministry, it was still like two to 300 people in this one ministry because it's a large church, right? And, and being a part of this larger entity, even as a volunteer, meant that there were all these um, there were all kinds of ministries running, and they were trying to prioritize different things, and there was all kinds of um, production demands and requirements that you had to participate in in order to be a part of this larger church. So there's lots of great production. I mean, the venue is very much like you would go to a concert, very great uplifting public speakers. It was effective at gathering suburban people in particular on Sunday morning, and I would say um, they were really good at, at utilizing kids' sports. They had an entire t- couple of fields and um, a giant gymnasium on site, and they would revolve their missional idea around kids' sports and engaging parents who were coming on site to be a part of that. And so they would have their youth leaders go and be coaches. And then those coaches would invite people to come and be a part of some of the things. and never had to, but it was just a part of the way that they would interact with the public. And I felt like they did a really great job. Now, the, the reason I bring this up, there's, those are three very different expressions of what the church can and does look like. They have different emphases on what they prioritize, what they try to do in order to contextualize what the church might look like in a given area that they are at in the 21st century of America. And, and, and at a church like ours, there is lots of people that come from lots of different backgrounds here, right? Amen? So we have people here um, who grew up in very high church liturgical expressions like Catholicism or Anglicanism um, in, in uh, Episcopalian. Then there's uh, what they call low church. That's not meant to be demeaning, but just not as high liturgical in their expression, uh, where it was non-denominational. And maybe you had like a, a praise band or a team or a choir or something like that. Um, there's people who, who come from a Protestant background or from a Catholic background in here. There are those who have uh, uh, come from backgrounds where the charismatic gifts were just on full display and others who fought, uh, found and sought God through solitude and quiet and Discipline, practice of disciplines. Um, I wanted to ask this question because I didn't mention it in this list, but has anyone been a part of a friend's church? If you even know what I mean by that, you've been there. A friend's church. That's the way that the Quakers refer to themselves. We are a friend's Quaker church, and so they consider them all friends together. Does anyone know how a friend's church operates? I've thought about doing it here <laughs> just to get the experience. Everyone comes in quietly. And you literally sit in quiet until someone feels that the Holy Spirit has told them that there's something they are supposed to say to the congregation. Everyone is the pastor, right? Everyone is responsible for coming in ready to possibly give to the congregation that morning. There isn't a single person that's designated as that. And sometimes they just come, sit in silence, and head out because nobody heard from the Holy Spirit that morning. And sometimes they come in and you're trying to quiet people like, hey, was that really the Holy Spirit or was that somewhere else that that came from, right? And so there's all, think about the level to which different engagements, different ways in which the, the gathering of believers has looked. And as we close out this series over the next couple of weeks, we want to circle back to this idea of what it looks like, all these ways, how do we honor them? And as far apart as some of these might feel, these very like expressive, dynamic, and very maybe quiet, contemplative kind of ideas, how far apart they might feel like, what do we see inside of the scriptures, inside of the, the idea of, of how we should budget our priorities and what we emphasize and what we de-emphasize, what we put our finances in and what we don't put our finances in. We are a church who's literally called common ground. 
And so there's an idea that you might find your expression here on a given Sunday, but then on another week, somebody else's turn might be up, and you might see something contemplative, a call and response, or there may be a regular worship team up here, and we've had gospel teams come in. We're trying to increase that even here. Part of the reason we keep an open hand on this expression is that it's because the shape of God's people and their gathering together is incredibly amoebous by design And this is a great strength to the people who follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to give a quick little object lesson. I've given it before, but um, I I wanted to pull out. And, and the idea here that I want us to see is that I can look and contain and see that the church takes shape in whatever container it happens to be poured into. And so I, I didn't plan for this earlier, but I just thought it would be beautiful later on when I realized that we have the baptism waters right here. And so you might come from a church that's very elegant, it's made of glass, it's delicate at times, but it's beautiful, it's got shape in order to appeal to the eye. Then you might be a part of a Star Wars mug kind of church. (laughs) And if I poured the substance here into this new mug, the total shape of everything changes completely. It now takes the shape of this container Its use is different, right? It's durable, it's rugged, it's meant to be on the go a little bit, right? It's meant to contain heat when things get hot. And then if I were to pour you into a beaker, I don't know, this is like an engineer's church, whatever that is. It's measured, it's got a pourability, it's very functional for scientific method purposes, and no matter what container I put, I could put it in a water bottle, I could throw it back into the, the, uh, the baptismal that's behind us, but the idea is that as we see this change from one thing to another, the strength is that as long as the substance being poured stays H2O, as long as the substance being poured doesn't change, it's not polluted, it's clear in its essence, it can actually take the shape of all kinds of different things and the capability for the gospel and Christianity to do this is one of the reasons it has survived as long as it has. It's one of the reasons that it has these kind of attributes. So I can put it into a bowl, bottle, cup, no matter what it is, I can reimagine this thing in all kinds of different cultural contexts. Why did God build it like this? Well, one is that it is permeable in all contexts that you find it. If, if I poured this on the rug, the water would just make its way into the rug, Right? If I were to take it and pour it on top of me, it would just permeate right into whatever it is. If you tried to take a a, a box of sand, it would just take the shape in and around the sand, and all of that water would be able to still completely saturate the context that we've put in. It fits all containers, soaks into all fabrics, and even deep down into rocks or sand. So it's permeable in all kinds of different contexts. The other one is that it is indestructible under pressure. The church, like liquid, like water, is, it has this a distinct ability to survive. Have you ever tried to stomp on water? Did you destroy it? Did you obliterate water from this earth? It just moved out from underneath. It scattered about. It went into the waffles of your Timmy's, depending on what you got on your feet. Your Nike's doesn't matter. 
And so check out the, the unstoppability. In fact, when you put fire on water, what does it do? It just becomes vapor. It's even more permeable. I can breathe that in, and it will take the shape of my lungs. It's completely unstoppable, completely permeable. And this is what you see when in Acts, the martyr Stephen is persecuted, and the heat gets turned up, and the people of God are just scattered about and begin taking the shape of all of the cities and towns and governments and political entities. And, and every bit of those things with the un, uh, undiluted DNA, the H2O of what the church is. The goal is always to maintain that purity, that integrity of that water. But we want to let it be okay. Well, you, you can prefer this, but you can't say that doesn't count. Right. You can prefer this, but you don't get to say that doesn't count. And so there's this way in which it humbles us and we allow it, uh, or, or rather come into agreement with the fact that whether we like it or not, the gospel is going to take the shape of everything and it transfers the gospel, baptizing new believers, teaching the commands of Jesus. That can't be diluted or polluted. And when we look at the earliest expressions in the first century believers, they had a term for this, this gathering of people called the ecclesia. Now, I, we don't do a lot of Greek in this um, thing. I don't do a lot of parsing out Hebrew verbs and things like that for, this, uh, for the purpose of preaching. Um, but this is one day where this is going to kind of revolve around this definition. I'm actually going to use the scriptures to help define it so we have an understanding of how to pinpoint triangulate. So the ecclesia is what we now translate as the gathering in your scriptures, the assembly or the church. That's most often what, what we do with it. We call it the church. Now, the ecclesia, you might be surprised to understand, was not specifically religious in its origination. And if you look it up on Webster's Dictionary, and we have that up there for you right now, it is a political assembly of citizens of ancient green states, especially, that is meant to be Greek states, by the way. It, I'm like, was, was green meaning something? No, it's just definitely a typo, so that's all right. Especially the periodic meeting of the Athenian citizens for conducting public business and for considering affairs proposed by the council. Okay, so, so here's what I want us to see. Um, it's a political word. And whether you agree with this idea or not today, the idea is that political people uh, and, and politicians and systems of political uh, ideas were meant to benefit the people in which they served, all right? Again, you might debate that today. Who knows what we're getting into in that situation? But, but my point here is that it is the idea that there are people coming together, the, the elders the maybe elected officials, or, or, or let me say it this way, just the grown folks in a family of people who come together to say, we need to make a decision. There's something on the table, and we need to make that decision based on what benefits the entire household, the entire city, the entire area in which we are responsible for. And so you bring this group of people together to represent this larger community. Playing off this idea, there's a, a theologian, his name is Alan Hirsch, um, he's one of my favorites, and he says this, an ecclesia was a gathering of wise community leaders brought together by their common vision for the harmony and well-being of the wider community. Now I want to give you an example from Acts 19, because that's the original meaning of an ecclesia. So why are we using it for what we do here today? All right, keep that in mind as we move forward. Acts 19, go ahead and open your Bibles. We'll talk about 32 through 41. Acts 19, 32 through 41. Um, I think we have it up there. Perfect. 
Let me read it out loud. It says, the assembly, that word is the ecclesia, was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I love that part. Somebody somewhere came along, saw a group of people shouting, yeah, let's get them. Do the thing. What are we doing here? Why why have we gathered to shout at whatever is happening right now? So some people don't even know what's going on. They see a crowd and they're like, I'm in. Let's, Let's cause an ecclesia, a gathering. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. Now you don't know who Alexander is. You don't know why they're shouting yet, right? He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. So there's some kind of idea that somebody is in trouble and a defense needs to be made. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now we have a polemic, which is a fancy word for two people in opposition together. So there's one group giving their case, one saying, no, 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 great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's the local god. Then it says in verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Okay, so he's giving us a little bit of background on their religious understanding of the the dominant religion in Ephesus. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have been brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press the charges. If there is anything further for you, to, or sorry, further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for the commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, the reason I read that to you, and it's kind of, you know, I'm just pulling this little moment out of something that's going on. We jumped into the book of Acts where, where Paul is preaching the gospel in areas that are in opposition to what the dominant religion would be in that moment. And it was not benefiting some people, so they brought up against them some charges, more informal than formal. They began to gather people in an ecclesia, a gathering, a church. Not like how we know it today, but you get what I'm saying. And they wanted to discuss these men are causing issues in our city. Now, they're not necessarily right, wrong, indifferent. Let let me say, from our perspective, we're going to say they're they're not correct. Even their own are like, hey, you might be blowing this out of proportion. We're going to get in trouble because we're taking this too far, right? You see their leader calming them down. So, So this group of people, though, has been brought together to make a decision on behalf of the city because they have a problem. Now, Alan Hurst continues, says the ecclesia brought wisdom to the village. It helped the village be a better village. They were members of the village, and their destiny was as connected to the prosperity and peace of that community as anyone. Isn't it interesting that the base raw material being used to develop the vision for us is that a group of people adding value to their village People who bring wisdom and blessing to the entire community, not just delivering religious services on the weekends. L- let me give you the summary for this, uh, for this uh, quote. Just like in that day, when they had something arise, they had to gather some people together to create a better society for the people as a whole. That was the original reason for an ecclesia. 
This is a kind of church gathering. They had a problem, and they deemed the Christians as the problem. So they called a meeting so that they could figure out what are we going to do about this. Now, they had some ulterior motives, right? But they've come together to try to decide what to do with these people. It's important that we understand that the original definition for where we get our word church, this idea of gathering, it needs to soak in a little bit. Because it reveals to us that the early, bro- uh, the early uh, church, the early believers, they too had their reasons for appropriating that term and using it for their own reasons. Because they believed that they had a politic or a social change to bring to society that would create a better civilization as a whole. We call it the kingdom of God. Do you understand? So, so there's this idea, this way of Jesus that they were saying when we gather together, what we're doing is trying to figure out as a, a whole, not, not, to, not to take over political entities, not to embed ourselves in a way that says we are going to dominate you and take over all of your systems, but in a way that says we are going to work our way in and saturate you all with this thing that is what we do in following Jesus and putting the kingdom on display through acts of love, through the way that we treat each other, through equity and justice in this place now. And so they gathered together because they believed they had a social change to offer up to the kingdom. They gathered together regularly in order to decide how to devote themselves, right, better and better, more frequently, more of their lives, more of the things that they had to this kingdom idea. They gathered together regularly so that they could understand how to orient themselves in their own community around the values of the kingdom of heaven. And we see it in Acts as everyone sold their possessions and came together to become one. And they're taking on each other's burdens and it's so loving, so powerful that people outside of it are like, what is going on there? They come together on a regular basis so they can understand, talk about how do we strategize, how do we, how do we infect the world around us with this virus that we call the good news that everyone has access to the king of the universe. And so the way their ecclesia played out functionally helped them accomplish this. And you see this term was never, ever, ever used to describe a building, to describe a Sunday morning gathering. That doesn't even make sense with the way this word was created. In fact, the first time anybody ever said, let's go to church, was this character named Clement of Alexandria, about 100 years later, who started to use that term, because the term means literally a people. So I can't say, like, hey, let's go to church. That would be like, let's, let's go to mom. Well, you, you don't. Like, you, you can go hang out with mom. Like, I can hang out with you all, and we can designate this as a time and designate this as a resource of building that we have to come to on a regular basis, but the idea is that that we would go to a church or go hang out at church on Sunday morning, but that on Sunday in this happens to be 7440 Hague, we are going to gather with the church together. Now, throughout the, the New Testament, it's always, there's 114 appearances of that word. It always means the same thing, this people group, this uh, assembly of them. Now, according to Acts 2, and I think we have this up here, and I, I didn't want to dwell on this. The, the whole sermon could have really hinged on this very part, but we talk about this a lot here. Acts 2.46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with gladness and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so the ecclesia 
had this rhythm of life where they were together how often? Daily. And there was a rhythm there where they were in the temple every single day. This is probably for evangelistic purposes because they were now followers of a rabbi named Jesus and they're teaching the teachings of Jesus back in the synagogues, the synagogue temples. And then they would hang out in their houses for communion meals, equipping and mutual edification towards one another, encouraging each other because being a Christian was hard back then. Is it hard now? Yeah, I mean, there's, I, could, I could make a case for both, right? Was it as hard as what they were dealing with? They knew they couldn't make it without each other. It was impossible, and their community gave that impression to those around. So over time, um, in our day, you know, over, over a couple thousand years, we have now taken um, and, and, and accommodated, made room for other schedules, we take communion meals um, that were genuinely meals opening with the communion elements, and now we just have a symbol of communion. We've distilled it down, and then there's different expressions of church that were the diversity and the beauty of the church and its permeability and its ability never to be, its unstoppability never to be killed, now becomes choices, options that we can decide, well, I like that kind of church. Oh, no, no, I don't like that anymore. I, I like this kind of church now oh, you know what, the music isn't quite what I want. I'm going to go to that church. And so what happened is that this strength of the church that was once used for its permeability and unstoppability now has the opportunity to divide itself based on preferences and styles and speakers and musical tastes and liturgical appeal as we personally decide which ones we like best. Now, instead of being a pillar of strength for the kingdom of God, we allow it to permeate and survive, it has become a contention for disunity in our own personal desires. You feel that sometimes, right? Okay, what do we do with this information? How do we take this um, and understand what, it, what are we actually supposed to be doing here on Sunday mornings? Why, why, are, why are we gathering? You know, remember our church as, as common ground, we're trying um, not just to uh, triangulate ourselves between multiple denominations, but put our finger on the pulse of this first century Acts church and decide, well, how do, how do we translate what they were doing there to today? Because things look a little different, Right? It's, it's got a different makeup. It's got a different way in which we do these things. So how do we do this? And our, and our answer was we're going to create a both and. We're going to live in rhythm as a gathering church, and then we scatter out as the church together to do the work that God has put in front of us so that we have a chance of capturing that permeable strength, that unstoppable substance that is what the church can be used to go from context to context, from generational context to context, from uh, ethnic context to context, from nation to nation, and stay the same. And so we gather in ministries throughout the week. We gather in house churches throughout the week. We gather in small, mid-sized gatherings like this today. But, but as we have moved from this daily community that was once on mission together to a weekly event for just a couple hours a day and even a trend that is moving, because um, most of us, for a few, uh, for a few uh, what do you call it, it's like these research groups, I think it's Pew, said the average attender comes once every four weeks. The average person who calls himself a church attender has now changed from once every four to once every six weeks. Okay. Now, so, here, so here's where I'm, I'm expecting you all to be. And I could be wrong, but let me throw it out there. 
um, this is what I don't want to create in here. I am not trying to preach a sermon about guilt. I am not trying to preach a sermon that tries to uh, buffer up and increase the attendance on a weekly basis in our church. That has nothing to do with what we're doing here because what I want us to do is to ask ourselves, what do we do in our day and age to actually accomplish the ecclesia? Not guilt, not shame, but recapturing the heart of what it is that we're doing and why we would gather in the first place. So, so that first question is the why. Why do we gather as a church? Well, we've said this before, but I just want to recap it. Believers have this unique opportunity on a regular basis to come to a unique place at a specific time so that we can benefit from each other. We come together in community. There's this momentum built when we gather. We get to sit up and be like, oh, I'm not alone in this. There's other people around here fighting this good fight, attempting to be the kingdom of heaven on a regular basis. And man, it is good to know that when I'm out there alone and whatever it is I'm doing throughout my week, that when I come back here, we can come together and understand we're all in this together. This thing is bigger than just my my household. This thing is bigger than just my house church. This thing is bigger than just my group of friends or a gathering um, that that is meant to do something on behalf of Jesus that's in a smaller context. So we come here and we look around and we're like, oh man, It is good to lift our voices together and know that there is a few more people than just me living this thing out. And our gathering was never meant to be a burden to your week, right? It's meant to be a sanctuary that you retreat to after living out the kingdom and you come back here and maybe get some wounds healed. Maybe get some equipping. Maybe, maybe someone came at you with a question. I don't know how to answer that. And you're like, oh, you interact with someone else who has wisdom beyond your seasons. And they say, this is how I would handle that. So we come back to this for replenishment. There's this unified teaching, which is what I'm doing right now, that takes place bringing us in sync together so that we coordinate ourselves around a verse or a couple of verses or a teaching, and then we send you out to go accomplish what that was meant to be. And so here as leaders, we want to equip the saints weekly for the commission gathering throughout the week. There's this unique moment of syncing up on a regular basis, in rhythm, once a week that we come together. There's a missional, there are missional and service opportunities that we can accomplish here together that we just can't. You can accomplish a lot in your smaller ministries, in your house churches, but we can accomplish more when we say, hey, we're going to give to outreach for this thing, or we're going to go give uh, and take on this whole three or four months of All Worthy of Love when we have that ministry running. That's something that we do together that can't be done as well in a smaller group context. So you have something to offer this congregation by bringing yourself into it, gathering your resources, time, talent, and treasure so we can do something bigger than what we can do alone. And then the hope here, too, is that as you come out of your individual worlds, out of your individual neighborhoods, out of the context of your friends who probably mostly agree, think, act, look like you, that we get to interact with a diversity of people who can allow us to let iron sharpen iron with different perspectives. All right, so that's why. Those are the undeniable benefits of coming here on a regular basis, but practically, and here's where I really want to give you this idea of the discipline of a gathering. And you're just like, give me a number, Eric. <laughs> like, how, how, many, how many days a week do I need to be here at the church? Because some of you have been here, and it's like you were here Wednesday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night, and then for the elders meeting on a random Monday, right? You were here at a building on some rhythm more often than you were with your families, and that wasn't as productive. Maybe even your kids resent it. So if I were to say, hey, here's a number, that would be the most legalistic thing I could do in this moment. That's the definition. 
Uh, well, there's four Sundays in a week and uh, at a 25% rate, but wait, there's at four times a year, there's five Sundays in a thing. So we got to calculate that in. So I need you here, 4.25 Sundays a month. That would be legalism. And the tricky thing is disciplines, like gathering together, are things we do to help keep us on track even when our heart doesn't want to do it. Even when you wake up and you're like, I don't want to. Just like any athlete preparing, you don't want to work out, and so you have a discipline, accountability, and people that keep you together even when you're uh, in a fleeting moment of weakness and you're just like, I don't, I don't want to do this today. And so it isn't just a just do it or here's the amount or you know, check off your boxes. It's this heart issue that we want to fight for. It's that gray space that we have to become accustomed to the tension of these things that is more relational than we'd like to admit. And as cliche as that is here, because we use this a lot, I think it's the most biblical way we can think. And so I'm just going to hand you a couple of practical things, um, questions to ask to examine your heart and your relationship with the gathering of believers, and then we'll head out today. In our church, we have at least one weekly gathering a week, right? It's this Sunday. We offer opportunities throughout the week, ministries that take place on Saturdays often, ministries that'll take place throughout the week, Bible studies that happen seasonally. We have um, informal gatherings in backyards where people hang out. We have house churches, and they are meant to encourage your heart in devotion, community, and mission. Those are the three pillars of our church. But there are times, you're going to hear the pastor say this, is, this is going to be like the one thing someone quotes back at me, right? There are times when your devotion, community, and mission would require you not to be here on Sunday. You heard that. There are times when it makes sense because your heart is in a place that I need to go serve on a Sunday, and the only time I'm going to see those people is that day. And so you're going to go and be there, and if your heart is stirred towards community devotion and division, uh, uh, community devotion, I made those really weird, so it turned into division, not division. (laughs) Community devotion and mission are the words that I'm looking for. And you may, according to God and listening to the Holy Spirit, he may tell you, don't come here on a Sunday morning. If you can't be here because you realize that there's someone in your church needs godly counsel and you just step out and go to a coffee shop, that might be a legitimate reason to miss this gathering. If you don't show up a couple weeks in a row because you're serving somebody in need, or maybe, listen to this, you actually need a true season of Sabbath. Not you woke up tired this morning, but deep rest. And you were devoted to God in Sabbath. And he says, don't come on a Sunday. Now, now, you not being here isn't a problem for me if that's your reasoning. However, if you're missing the gathering because of lack of devotion, movement away from community, or mission, that's another thing altogether. If it's because of, listen, shame or guilt or fear, because you've been around judgmental groups of people in church, and you're like, I don't want to go there because they might judge us. Look, don't listen to that voice. If you've done something throughout the week that you're not proud of and you don't want to feel guilty when you walk through these doors, that's not the intent of what we're doing here today. I I want to encourage you, if you don't come on a Sunday morning because of guilt or fear or shame, do not listen to the voice of the accuser. Come anyways. Let the body of believers be a hospital to you. If you don't come on a Sunday morning because of convenience, Because the pajamas were just a little too comfortable and that coffee smells good, I'm just going to log online. Or you just rather watch football. If you, I, I've had one high-level leader say this to me. Um, 
they're not here now, so it doesn't, uh, I don't think it'd be personally offensive to anyone, but they said to me, I, uh, I only come on Sunday when I don't have something else going on. And I'm like, did you just say that to my face? You just straight said that with a, with a like, you not, you're not joking. I, when I come, I come because there's nothing else going. So if nothing else is happening, then I'll show up. But, but see what it does. There's no discipline or a prioritization of the gathering of believers in a uh, stance like that. I told you an average attender comes once every six weeks. That's fine if we want to be an average church. If we want to embrace that as the, the way in which we operate, and I think we're probably on par for that. If we want to be an average church, then we can, we can acquiesce to the American norm for a person who calls himself a churchgoer. But if we want to see extraordinary churches rise up and do extraordinary things or be able to um, come against extraordinary circumstances, we are going to have to do better than the average. We have enough households in here, we've shared this before, to have two services, um, and our inconsistency hinders that progress for us. And so, does, does my attendance by any reasonable measure or definition make a statement of devotion to God if you were to look at it? Ask yourself that question. Does my attendance, again, I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone, just stop and ask yourself. You may be like, yeah, no, it's good, I'm fine. Does my attendance by any reasonable measure or definition make a statement of devotion to God? In fact, if you told someone else, this is how often I go, would they be like, that sounds like devotion? Would someone who has devoted themselves to something else, like a sport or a hobby, hear that and say, I give more time to my hobby than you give to that? That's not, I'm devoted to rock climbing. You're not devoted. Or maybe you would self-examine, it would lead you to the understanding that you're more devoted to your own hobbies than you are to the church. Do you see what I'm doing? It's a relational question to ask ourselves and definitely check our hearts, not a set of legalistic rules that we have to follow because I can't define those things for you. You define those things. And extraordinary churches that do extraordinary things are extraordinarily devoted to God, to each other, and to the mission that he has put in front of us, the assignments that God has given us, and there is a huge one put on this church. And they're prepared to encounter extraordinary opposition. I just want to end with this one last story. I came across it this week, um, and I just thought it was important. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a fairly well-known pastor-writer. He was alive during World War II, and he was known for, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, known for his intense disciplines. In fact, he created an informal seminary that was happening underground in Germany because he wasn't allowed to have a regular seminary. They were forced into this communal living space where they were meeting together every single day, breaking bread. They were forced into Acts 2 community. One review said this, Bonhoeffer writes that, sometime, oh, sorry, writes that community is not something to be taken for granted. Stop, full stop. We can do this. We don't do it very often. If it was taken away from us, would we miss it? He writes that community is not something to be taken for granted. I'm definitely guilty of having done that. Because I don't have the danger of this being taken away from me. Not yet. 
In the work, he detailed the necessity of the church functioning as a living and vibrant organism, what he called a community of love, because this gave him an inside view to the needs of the body of Christ. He was able to articulate what he saw as a gap in reality between what the church looked like according to the book of Acts and what the church actually looked like before the eyes of the world. And so on one occasion, a young man in his seminary comes to him and challenges him and says, hey, I think you're taking this discipline too far. And so he says, okay, um, meet me at this location. They jump, they meet at the location. They jump into the boat. They row across this boat and stop. And he points to a camp where Hitler is training his soldiers for the Third Reich. And all he says is, what we do back there has to be better than what they are doing here. We have to build something stronger than what he's doing. And now the hope is, because as, as massively successful as that evil regime was, they don't exist anymore. Uh, it is a, a scar of embarrassment in the nation that they're still repenting for. But the kingdom of God and what Jesus set us out to do and make disciples and the seminary that was created by Dietrich Bonhoeffer to continue that thing moving has lasted and become permeable and become unstoppable in its movement of the kingdom of love here on this earth without hindrance. That's what we're walking into. That's the extraordinary value of the gathering of the believers together. And so I wanna ask you to evaluate your relationship with it. Where do you stand? What needs to increase? What things need to be reprioritized? What things in our lives need to be changed? Because if we want to do something extraordinary like that, we have to be stronger than the things that are discipling us and our children towards something else. Let's pray. So Jesus, thank you um, for the, the encouragement and the life of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer to say, take this seriously. Don't take it for granted. Act like it could be taken from us, even if that's not around the corner. Engage the world around us as we meet together to decide how we can be earthly good to the community around us in unity, in equity, in justice, in kindness, in service in healing those who need healed, in delivering those who are oppressed by demonic chains. May we be an extraordinary community of gatherers, and we are the ones who get to decide if we're gonna do that. So Father, work through us powerfully. Give us the anointing. Let us cherish and enjoy and be excited for the days that we come together, that we get to see people we haven't seen. We get to be encouraged, maybe even have a word for each other because we were praying for them and something came up in our study of the scriptures together and I can't wait to see that person on Sunday because I have something I need to tell them. Ministering to one another. Yes, Father, life together uh, could be an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. We pray for this right now in Jesus' name. All God's people said.